Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. We just had a great election, by the way. I'm recording the day after the election, and it seems as if the Democratic vote got out and a lot of good people were elected, and that makes me very happy. So I just want to take a moment to celebrate small victories. And then I want to say to people in New York, I think it was 24% of the vote. 24% of people voted, only 24%. And I know that at least in New York, de Blasio was likely going to win anyway, and it wasn't necessarily the most exciting time to go out and vote. But we have to vote. We have to have to. There's really no excuse anymore. We can't talk about politics, and we can't talk about having opinions about what's going on in the country if we don't get out and vote, even if you think that it's a foregone conclusion. So I just want to encourage everybody to go outside, go down the street, however far it is, fill out your ballot, vote. We got another one coming up in a year. We have to take back control. And I don't even like to say take back control, right? Because it makes it very us and them. So maybe instead I will say, please exercise your conscience and vote Because it's not just something you get to do, it's a responsibility. Okay, moving on. Maybe that was too little too late. I don't know, but I had to say it. In the midst of our discussion of the kleshes, the obstacles to liberation, I want to take a moment, an episode, to talk about the idea of self a little bit more broadly. And please know, please know that everything I go into here is just skimming the surface. This kind of stuff is the stuff whole philosophies are based on, and it can be debated and discussed for literally thousands of years. With that in mind, one little episode on the topic doesn't seem too excessive. So I want to skim the surface of what self is, how we're defining self from a couple of different points of view, and then also, you know, who cares? So what is the self? Most of yogic philosophy believes that there are two parts to the self. The first being the lower self or ego, which consists of, you know, the the physical, temporary body, the five senses, all your changing thoughts and opinions, And this is the part that most humans think of as self. That's what we think of as the real us. But yoga philosophy is arguing that that is not our real self. The other self is the true self, the higher self. And that exists within each individual. It's the essential unchanging core of a person. In the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali talks about liberation. This is what we've been talking about with the obstacles to liberation, the kleshas, and what is liberation in this case but the realization of the true self. Patanjali tells us that the pure, blissful inner self exists already within each individual, and all we need to do is get rid of 
all the things that are illusions, the things that are covering that true self, like desire and aversion and ego. Yeah. So again, yes, that's related to what we've been talking about, the five obstacles to liberation. Get rid of all the things that obstruct the truth and you'll discover within this core true higher spiritual self that is in its very nature connected to the universal self or universal energy. Believe it or don't, that is what that philosophy is all about. According to yoga, you are made of an energy completely distinct from matter. You, the self... Atma are an indivisible unit of the element known as life. Thus, there are two fundamental energies, matter and life. Your body is made of the element matter, but you, the Atma, are spark of the element life. When you, the life particle, are in or wedded to a material body, that body is called a living organism. So the answer of who or what are you, is you, the self, or a particle of the element life. You're presently within a material body. You're temporarily possessing and using that body. You are not material. You are not the body, but you are a spark of life within that body. According to the Bhagavad Gita, for the self, there is never birth nor death, nor does the self ever cease to exist. The self is unborn, eternal, ever-existing, undying, and primeval. So what do I mean when I say yoga philosophy? Sometimes I'm talking about a really incredibly broad definition of a lot of different traditions that have come down the pike and landed in Western culture. And Ashtanga yoga, the eight limbs of yoga, is what most of Western culture yoga is based on, as well as on Samkhya philosophy. The Samkhya school assumes that there are two bodies, a temporal body and a body of subtle matter, of energy matter, right? And that's the same thing as what we were just talking about. When the physical body perishes, the energy body or the temporal spark moves on, right? That it consists of consciousness and something that coordinates the impressions you get from the senses and of breath. So that's a way to look at things. And because this isn't insulting at all to the true study of philosophy, let's skim the surface of what some Buddhist schools have to say about this. In Buddhism, the term, now I have to say, all my Buddhist study has been reading and meditating. So I don't always know how to pronounce everything. So if I have any Buddhist scholars listening, you can feel free to let me know uh, that I have incorrect pronunciation or if you have philosophical differences. Also fine. The term anatta or anatman refers to this idea of non-self. That there is no unchanging permanent self or soul in living beings, that there's no candle flame within that lives undisturbed amidst the winds of whatever. And that's a big difference between Buddhism and Hinduism, even though both are non-theistic. So uh, let's rewind. Some Hindus and Hindu schools are polytheistic, meaning they believe in multiple gods as opposed to no 
God. And this might be the Hinduism with which some of us might be more familiar, mostly because the iconography of theistic religions, the art, the images are more likely to stick with us. As humans, we see a painting of a person, and if we call that person Jesus or Shiva or Zeus, we're more inclined to identify with that than a painting of, you know, what would a painting of a non-theistic philosophy be? You know, I don't know. Maybe like an Arthur Miller play or something. So, yeah, so back to Buddhism and the idea of self. Instead of a true self, a higher self, Buddhism is working with no self. And the realization of the no self serves as, as the definition in that case of nirvana, as opposed to the realization of the true self as being the goal or liberation. No self, no soul, so no higher self. The reason there is no abiding core within us is that the ever-changing forces that impinge on us, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, are constantly setting off chain reactions inside of us. This quote is from Robert Wright in an article from the New York Times, to which, of course, I will link in the show notes. That article is mostly about how clear in terms of messaging Buddhism is and how it is not the adorably complicated riddle many in the West make it out to be. In this article, though, Wright mentions the idea of the non-self, and that's mostly what I'm referencing in this discussion. So where, as in Samkhya or in yogic philosophy, the senses distract from the true self, This Buddhist view is saying that the senses are not distracting from the true self because there is no true self. Instead, the senses are taking in information and that information sets into action a certain set of reactions. And like a glorious Rube Goldberg machine, we travel through the world being acted upon by external forces and acting out in return, constantly perpetuating a loop of action and reaction. And this leads to a state where everything, every single thing is cause and effect, like a computer program. If this, then this. And everyone is programmed slightly differently since their inception, so the same action may elicit different reactions from different people. And thank goodness, because from there comes the spice of life. And that's why someone can tell a joke and one person in the audience laughs and another doesn't. It's why poetry is beautiful or it isn't, why dance can make some people cry and other people snore because our action-reaction loop, our Rube Goldberg machine, is programmed differently than everyone else's, mostly, like genetic code. And it's why, maybe, why we can never fully understand one another, why you can never really know if someone sees things the exact same way you do. It's why when my two-year-old niece picks up a Lego and it's like, lime colored and she says lalo i can't really say no that's not yellow it's green because to her it's yellow so i say i call this one green but that's the best i can do not to tell her how to see it but to tell her what i see further along in the article wright says Every day, millions of people practice mindfulness meditation. They sit down, focus on their breath, and calm their minds. But the point of mindfulness meditation isn't just to calm you down. Rather, the idea, 
as explained in ancient Buddhist texts, is that a calm, contemplative mind can help you see the world as it really is. And I would posit, no longer quoting, it almost doesn't matter which school of philosophy speaks to you or which is capital T true, because our actions would be the same if you consider it. If you believe that the goal of meditation is to lift the veil of ego in order to find Atman, then meditate. But if you believe there is no self beyond self, and that that itself is an illusion that veils reality, then meditate, because that is the way to better see reality. Wright says, all we can do is clear away as many impediments to comprehension as possible. Right? So regardless of what we want to see, clear sight is needed. Regardless of the goal, action towards that goal is needed, which I find incredibly comforting. Okay, so if it doesn't matter if you're into the idea of true higher self or no self beyond self, right? If our actions would be the same, which is arguable, but let's just say, if that were true, why does the idea of self matter? Why should we think about it at all? Or more pointedly, does how we define self matter? Oh, wow, it looks like we're out of time here, kids. Just kidding. It's just a really hard question to answer, which I'll touch on uh, in just a minute. But first, I want to thank you for listening to Yoga for the Revolution If you are not already a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Please become one and tell a friend. You can follow Yoga for the Revolution on Facebook at facebook.com slash yoga for the revolution. I am on Twitter at Y underscore F underscore T underscore R. And of course, on the website at yogafortherevolution.org, where you can read the show notes so you can get all the kind of background information that I refer to and find all our back and future episodes and chime in about what you feel the true nature of self is or not. So what I'm saying here is I don't necessarily think it matters how you define self as long as you do. Meaning if you think that we all have a higher being within and work to reveal that higher self, that's cool. But if you don't and instead believe that we're beings of cause and effect, then it follows that we are guided by that belief as well, and with it, a system of ethics. We live in an incredibly selfish time. Maybe everyone says that through the ages. Maybe all times are like this. I don't, I don't know. But right now, the idea of self is very convoluted. We buy a magazine called Self. And we focus on how we present our physicality out in the world. That seems to be a huge priority. We act as if self is all that matters and that others do not matter, as if we are alone. That we should act to protect ourselves from change or for some perceived loss that occurs with someone else's gain. And even if you're not guided by a set of ethics that you believe in and strive to follow, then it follows at least that our actions are part of a larger cause and effect loop. You could want people to be healthy because we are all God's children. You could want people to be healthy because you believe at the core we are all the same. You could want people to be healthy because You don't want to live around a bunch of sick people who can't work and are drained on the economy because that in turn would cause you suffering. These are all beliefs in the sense of self. They all engender action, but they only 
all get the same answer when some thought, any thought, is put into it at all. The only way we get to the idea that we don't want all people to be healthy is by not thinking it through. The minute you think about it for a second, there is only one conclusion to be drawn. What I'm saying is you could believe we're all connected cosmically, energetically. That belief could guide your behavior in certain ways, likely towards a more compassionate way of being. You could not believe that, but still believe that all beings are alike enough to deserve certain rights. Recognizing that the woman across the street may not be your mother, but she's likely someone's mother. You could not even believe that and not really care about another person, but still believe that every action has an effect in the world around it. Ripples that occur either cosmically, karmically, or just socially. And so therefore that alone could guide you to behave in a way that resembles compassion. Do you see what I'm getting at? Just like Wright describes meditation, if you meditate to be calm, great. If you meditate for clarity, great. Because meditation allows us to be calm enough to see clearly. The same thing holds true for these various worldviews. You could believe there's one true God who watches and judges. You could believe we are all watched and judged by our higher selves or by each other. But at the end of the day, we must, we must think about it in some way. This, by the way, is my opinion, in case you couldn't tell. This is not an ancient text. This is not a religion. This is my opinion. And I'm saying we must. We must consider it because all actions take place in context and we will all suffer consequences whether we are acting intentionally or not. And even the most selfish among us must see that. Consider this my op-ed to the GOP. Please, you must see that. In the meantime, do what you can to keep breathing and live to fight another day. Fast, 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 fast,